you have your Bible, please open it to Genesis chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 22 and 23 today. There is a Oscar Mayer commercial about a grandpa who tells the truth no matter what question is asked of him. You may have seen this commercial. One of the questions that he got came from his granddaughter. She was sitting on the porch and, and he was trimming the hedges. And she said, Grandpa, when did you know that Grandma was the one? And he said, when her sister dumped me. <laughs> Many of us have spent time pondering the question about the one. Is he the one? Is she the one? How will I know when someone is the one? You could also be asking yourself, am I truly with the one that is right for me? Others of you know with full assurance you're with the one that is right for you. And yet others of us wonder if you will ever find that special someone no matter who we are, we all have dealt with the one question. If not, eventually you will. So if you're young, don't worry. You're going to deal with it. Why? Because we're all created for relationships, like Adam. We're all created for relationships. And when we ask about that, the one is longing for something. Remember what the Lord God said about Adam. What did he say from last week? It is not good that he should be alone. I would make a helper fit for him. So God gave Adam the provision of marriage for his good. At its inception, marriage was given to Adam so that he could have the best companion of his life. And this companion was his life opposite. It was a woman, a female, not another male. Now today we're going to talk about the nature of this companionship between Adam and Eve. The nature of it. Genesis 2 verses 22 and 23. In the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to him. And then the man said, this is at last bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. This is God's word. Please pray with me and for me. Father, as we come to your truth. Lord, we need, we desperately need your spirit, Lord, to give us understanding. We need your spirit to supernaturally be at work in this place today. Because if he doesn't move, Lord, nothing I says, say is going to matter. It's not going to penetrate hearts. Lord, if he doesn't take the truth, of your, God's truth, and apply it to our hearts, Lord. We need the spirit and the word to work together, and they do. So, Father, you know what we need. You know what our marriages need. You know what our families need. And so, Lord, we spread ourselves out before you today and ask you to have your way with us. And we can trust that it's okay because you are good in all that you do. So, Spirit, I pray that you will come. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Last week, 
I said we were going to look at marriage through three big lenses. There was creation, fall, redemption. And when you look at marriage through the lenses of creation, you see that marriage is covenant. Marriage is covenant. Covenant is the nature of marriage. It's the nature of the companionship that Adam and Eve had. So first, we're going to talk about what I call a covenantal spouse. A covenantal spouse. Verse 22. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. You may be asking yourself, well, what is a covenantal spouse? I'll get into that. In our modern culture and society, there are several approaches that people can take when it comes to marriage or they can take when it comes to finding that special someone. You have what I call the partnership or contract approach where spouses are just business partners. They enter into a contract that can easily be broken and they usually break because of unreconcilable differences. You have the cohabitating approach where a man and woman, they live together, but they have not committed to one another in marriage. You have the consumer approach, where spouses use marriage for self-gratification in order to find emotional, sexual fulfillment and self-actualization. You have the roommate approach, where there's no emotional closeness and intimacy between the spouses, no unity. They're just roommates doing life independently of each other, but they live under the same roof, but they're just roommates. You have the fairy tale approach where spouses in a marriage with these rose-colored glasses trying to live happily ever after without realizing that marriage takes hard work to make it work. Finally, you have what I call the parental partnership approach where spouses agree, let's just make it about the kids. Let's just make it about them. Let's forget about working on this. We'd be the best parents we could be but we ain't going to work on being the best spouses we can be. It's all about the kids. All of these approaches, all these spouses who take these approaches are self-centered and individualistic spouses. Tara Parker Pope, she, she wrote an article called The Happy Marriage is the Me Marriage. She writes, in modern relationships, people are looking for a partnership. They want partners who are going to make their lives more interesting, who help each other attain value goals. In these approaches, the individual, the individual is more important than the marriage itself. And all those approaches I told you about, the individual is more important than the marriage itself. Now, the Bible does not approach marriage that way. The Bible says and teaches us that marriage is covenant. Covenant. And those who enter into it must approach it as such, especially those of us who are believers. Now, what is a covenant? What does that word mean? We don't usually talk about that word in our society, covenant. When you read scripture, you see that covenants were made throughout, between man and man and God and man. And in the Old Testament times and in the ancient Near Eastern times, covenants were common. Robertson says, 
He's an author. He says, a covenant is a bond in blood, sovereignly administered. It's a bond because it binds and commits people together. It's a bond in blood because life and death are attached to the covenant. In the Old Testament, when you read the, when you read the phrase, to make a covenant, that literally means to cut a covenant. People cut a covenant with each other. And only death could relieve someone of their covenant obligations. So when a man and woman marry, when a man and woman tie the knot, they cut a covenant together between God and with each other. Keller teaches us, Keller says, in a covenant, the good of the relationship takes precedence over the immediate needs of the individual. In a covenant, the good of the relationship takes precedence over the intermediate needs of the individual. In a marriage covenant, the good of the marriage has priority over you as an individual. And that requires spouses to be covenantal spouses, not self-centered spouses. Genesis 2, as I read in Genesis 2.22, the look from the rib, the Lord took from the man, he made into a woman. There's significance in the Hebrew word that has been translated brought. It means to cause to come or to bring in. The term is used when one brings in women as wives for their sons. Think about that. The term is used when someone brings in a woman to be a wife for his son. Think about what the Lord is doing here. He brought, he had intent when he brought her to Adam. Not so she can be his friend with benefits. Not so they can have an open relationship. Not so they can just casually date. Not so they can just cohabitate. Not so they can be on again, off again. Not so she can be his roommate. Not so she can be his business partner. Not so she can, she can, they can be consumers. Not so they can simply be parental partners. He brought her to him to be his wife in covenant, period, covenant, so they can cut a covenant together. She is the one for Adam, and he's the one for her. The Lord God is a father walking his daughter down the aisle to give her away to Adam. That's a wed- this is the first wedding ceremony in Scripture. This was a wedding ceremony. I hope you realize that. He brought her to him, gave her to him, gave her away to him to be his wife. Not to be his property, not so he could be her property, but they were to be a gift to each other and to be equal in dignity, worth, and value, but yet distinguished in their roles. The text tells us that the Lord God made the woman from the rib he took from the man the Hebrew word that's been translated man is banai, and it means to build. The Lord God is a builder who fashioned his rib from Adam into a woman. The Sydney Opera House in Sydney, Australia is one of the most beautiful buildings in the world. 
If you've ever seen it, you, you know that it has a distinctive about its roof. Its roof is, is made up of vaulted roof shells. It is, the building is truly a masterpiece, if you've ever seen it, from its design, from its details. It took a good builder to build that. It took a builder who paid attention to details to build that. He just didn't come up with that by accident. To creativity. When the Lord God made the woman, he paid attention to the details, to the design. She was a masterpiece because she was created by a master. Ladies, everything that distinctively makes you a woman from head to toe was given to you by design. He made you beautiful. No matter what the world says, nor how you feel. And in the covenant of marriage, he fashioned you not to be a roommate wife, not to be a partnership wife, not to be a consumer wife, not to just be a parental partner wife, not to be a fairy tale wife, but to be a covenant wife for your husband. That's how he made you in the context of marriage, to be that. Men, Genesis 2, 7 says, when the Lord God, he formed a man out of the dust of the ground. The term that is used there is saw, which means to plan or to make pottery. Here we see God as the, the divine potter or artist who, who sculpted the man from the dust. Think of some of the most the masterpieces, the sculptures in the world today, like the Redeemer in Rio or David by Michelangelo. There's detail there. There are designs in those sculptures. Men, everything that makes you a man was given to you by divine design, even your role was given to you by divine design. Given to you by God. He made you who you are. And in the covenant marriage, he has made you to be a covenant husband to your wife. Not a roommate, not a business partner, not a consumer, not a fairy tale husband, and not just a parental partner, but a covenant husband to your wife. Where are we? What type of spouse are you to your spouse? Is it covenant spouse or is it a selfish spouse? One or the other. Or what kind of spouse are you going to be for the one when you get the one? Selfish or covenant? Remember what I said last week. The standards that God set for marriage stands, even if you rebel against it. It still stands. It still stands, even if you rebel against it. Marriage is a covenant. And spouses are to be covenant spouses to one another, period. He fashioned you to be such. Earlier I said that in the Old Testament, that the phrase, let's make a covenant, means to cut a covenant. You see, there was a ritual that took place when covenants were made. This ritual involved animals being cut. In Genesis 15, that gives us an example of this ritual. In Genesis 15, we know the Lord God entered into a covenant with Abraham. This is what the Lord God told Abraham. Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Abraham brought these. He cut them in half and laid each half against each other. He did not cut the birds in half. Now, if you're familiar with this event, you know what happened. Abraham fell asleep. Then a symbolic reputation of God passed through the pieces of dead animals. In a human, if a covenant was between two humans, guess what? Both parties will walk between those pieces of animals. Think about this owl here. 
There was animals on each side. Me and another person will walk between those pieces as we enter covenant together. Why? One author says, the animal division symbolizes a pledge to death at the point of covenant commitment. The dismembered animals represented the curse that the covenant maker calls down on himself if he should violate the commitment which he has made. That is why covenants are not easily broken, because people put their life on the line. The same is true in marriage, but we don't approach marriage that way. When we think about finding the one or being married, it's for self-fulfillment, not self-denial. Keller goes on and tells us that marriage not based on self-denial but on self-fulfillment requires a low or no-maintenance partner who meets your needs while making no claims on you. A marriage not based on self-denial but on self-fulfillment requires a low to no-maintenance partner who meets your needs but requires no claims on you. In a covenant marriage, a covenant spouse focuses on their responsibilities in the covenant. And that is being the best covenant spouse you can be for your spouse. Covenant spouses put the good of the marriage as top priority over the individual needs, wants, and desires. They put their selfless individual wants and desires on the line to the point of death and sacrifice for the sake of the marriage. Now, I know what you're thinking. Like, Pastor Al, you done lost your mind. I didn't sign up for that. And I'm not going to sign up for that. But guess what? You did sign up for it the day you took those vows. The day you said I do was the day you went all in. The day you said I do was the day you went all in. It was the day you put your selfish desires on the line to the point of death and sacrifice. The problem is we don't live out our vows that we took on oath before God and before one another. It was the day you entered into covenant with God and with your spouse. You both walked between those dead animals on the day you said, I do. You took vows to be a covenant spouse. Realize that. You didn't take vows to be a selfish spouse. You took vows to be a covenant spouse. You didn't say, I promise to think about only myself. On this day, I'm going to love only me. That's not what you said when you got married. <laughs> you took covenant vows to be a covenant spouse. You need, to, you need to think about those vows before you say, I do. But we don't, because we all caught up in the moment. The day you took those vows was the day you entered into covenant with your spouse. Make no mistake, it's what you did. Even if you don't deny it, even if you deny it, even if you don't acknowledge it, you did. Adam says here, this is at last, which is really means, at last I have found my light opposite. This is at last, flesh of my flesh, bones of my bones. From Adam's response, you, you, you sense that he was happy like a kid in a candy store. He's finally someone that was like him and yet different than him. One commentator says, Adam's expression probably refers to a covenant loyalty in which he was expressing a covenant commitment to Eve. Another one commentator says, these words serve as a biblical counterpart to our modern marriage ceremony in weakness, i.e. flesh, in strength, i.e. bone. I believe Adam 
made a covenant vow in these words to Eve to be her covenant husband, doing all he could for the sake of their marriage. Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh communicates commitment. Commitment to only her. That marriage is not going to be open. It's going to be between one man and one woman. In our modern ceremonies, each of us say, I take you to be my wedded spouse, my wedded husband or wife, in the presence of a God and these witnesses to have and to hold from this day forward, for better or for worse, for richer or for poor, in sickness and in health, and to love and to cherish, to death do us part. Nowhere do you see anything about self. It's all you promised and what you're going to do. I don't think we fully understand the implications of the vows we took when we got married. I know I didn't. But I sure found out once we got married. <laughs> these, were not, these are not just nice poetic words. These are not just things you just cite just so you memorize. These are not just words you say you can get the warm fuzzies to each other. When you said those vows, you committed yourself to your spouse in covenant. You took vows to be a covenant spouse, to have and to hold for this day forward, for better or for worse, for rich or poor, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish, to death do us part. That's covenant. That's you walking between the dead pieces of animals and calling down curses on yourself if you fail to do so. This is you putting your life on the line for your marriage. If you're not willing to put your life on the line for your marriage, you're just playing games. You're playing marriage. But what happens after the wedding? See, when we say those vows, you know, we get to be feeling good. We're so in love. But what happens after the wedding? We forgot to put into practice the vows that we took. It's called, some of us, we foolishly think the in love phase of marriage, the romance of marriage, that's going to be what keeps the marriage going. I got to tell you, the in love phase is like this. You ain't always going to feel in love. If you think you're going to always feel in love, you ain't been married very long. One article I read says, while our marriages are strengthened by marriage, the latter has no particular loyalty to the former. Our feelings may lead you out of marriage as quickly as it led you into it. It lead you out of marriage as quickly as it led you into it. If you're going for a feeling. Every spouse has said this. Why should I do such and such when my wife and husband isn't doing it? Why must I do it? If they ain't doing it, then I ain't going to do it. Remember the vows you took. Did you say that when you stood before God and the people? Did you say, I'm going to love you, cherish you, if you do it? Go back to your vows. Was that condition in those vows you made to God? I'm going to do these, God, only if my husband do it. I'm going to do these, God, only if my wife do it. No, that's not what you said. You said, I take you to have and to hold you for this day forward, for better or for worse, for richer or for poor, in sickness and in health, in love, to love and to cherish, to death do us part. There was no kind of condition in that statement, in those vows.
Again, we fail to realize the implications of the covenant vows we took. You took to do those vows even if your spouse doesn't do it. You got to understand that. You are to be a covenant spouse even when your spouse fails to do so. Keller says again, wedding vows are not a declaration of present love but a mutual promise of future love. A wedding should not primarily be a celebration of how loving you feel now that can safely be assumed. You feel loving now rather in a way that you stand before God, your family, and all the main institutions of society and you promise to be a loving, faithful, true to the other person in the future regardless of how you feel and regardless of circumstances. That's what you're promising in those vows that you took. That's covenant. That's putting the marriage before yourself. It's self-denial. It's sacrifice. But many of you will leave here today saying, I would not do it. Or I can't do it. But I want to show you, you do do it. Many of you are in covenant relationship with your kids than your spouse. But who gives more in your relationship with your kids? Who sacrifices more in the relationship between you and your kid? You do. And you know what? You don't ever complain about it. That child hurts you, guess what? You're going to forgive them because you love them. That child rebel against you, you're going to take them back every time because you love them. But you refuse to do that for your spouse. You refuse to do that with the person that's supposed to be the best companion in your life. The best companion in your life is not your kid. When they get 18, they're leaving. And guess what? It's just going to be you and your husband. That's where it's going to be. We give the best to our kids, but we give our leftovers to our spouses. We give them the breadcrumbs. We give them what's left. God gave you your spouse to be the best companion of your life. But will you treat it as such? Your marriage, the most important relationship in the family is the relationship between the husband and the wife. Because all your kids are going to learn from marriage. They're going to learn from your house. They ain't going to learn from that neighbor next door. They're going to learn from you. Husbands, your sons are going to learn from you what it means to love a woman. And they love and serve a woman. Moms, wives, your daughter is going to learn from you what it's like for a wife to love her husband. And if you're a bad spouse, guess what you pass it on to your kids? This is what it's like to be a spouse. So I'm telling you, what kind of spouse you're going to be? What kind of spouse you choose to be? Can please know it has consequences for your family generations to come. Family-wise, it will. You can pass it along to your kids. So if you ain't fighting for your marriage, you're teaching your kids, you don't have to fight for it. I'm challenging you, encouraging you to be covenantal spouses to one another. You sacrifice what you got to sacrifice to have a good marriage. You sacrifice it. You suck it up and you fight for it. You lay down your life for one another. You got to go to counseling? Go to counseling. Do what you need to do to make it work. It's hard. It's going to be hard. 
But guess what? There is a God who is able. We sung about it. Mighty to save. He will give you what you need to have the marriage you want to have. And we're going to get into why it's hard. We all know sin is the reason why it's hard. I'm showing you what marriage was intended to be before sin came. That's what we're doing. And so, husbands, he has formed you to be a covenant husband to your wife. And remember, you took vows to do so, men. And it stands, even if you fail to live it out. Will you do it? Wives, he formed you to be a covenant wife to your husband, and you took vows to do so. Will you do it? Will you do it? Remember, the standard still stands, even if you are in rebellion against it. But guess what? There's repentance. There's forgiveness through Jesus Christ. So you ain't got to leave here all beating yourself up. If you're convicted of your sin, go to the one who is mighty to save. And he'll give you what you need to be the spouse you need to be to your spouse. Let us pray. Father God, I know I need your spirit to be a covenant spouse to my wife. I'm selfish. I, I do things and say things I shouldn't say. We all have sin in our life. We all have issues. Those issues don't go away when we get married. They just get magnified. Sinners marry sinners. We only foolishly think we're not going to sin anymore. So, Father, I pray for the marriages of our church. The Lord, you, Lord, want healthy marriages. You love marriage, Father. And I pray that you give those who are married the strength to fight. It's hard. It's, it's, it's bloody sometimes. It's filled with baggage, a lot of issues, a lot of water on the bridge for some of us. But, Father, you're a good God. And I pray that you would take the matches of our church and redeem all of them. Make them reflect you more. And I pray for those who want to be married or not, that you meet them where they are. And if they have loneliness, Lord, I pray they would take that to you. That you would meet us where we are, Father, in the, in the circumstances that we're currently in. And we trust always in your goodness. Always in the fact that you, Lord, are a God who is sovereign in our life, over all that we go through. Yes, we go through the valleys. Yes, we're on the mountaintops. But what all remains the same is that you are faithful to your people. And so I pray that we leave here encouraged, that we leave here expecting our God to move in our families, expecting our God to move in our marriages, move in the lives of our kids, move in the broken relationships in our families, expecting you to provide some type of healing. You say in your word, you work all things to the good of those who love you. Show us that. Let us believe that, that it doesn't have to be the way that it is. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.